We are hearing four cases here today. Our first case is Florida Commissioner of Agriculture versus Attorney General of the United States, uh, 22-13893. Um, Mr. Hall, you uh, have reserved uh, three minutes for rebuttal. You may proceed when you are ready. Thank you, Your Honors. Good morning, and may it please the court. The challenged laws and regulations at issue in this matter are unconstitutional as applied to the appellants. The district court order concluding otherwise and dismissing the amended complaint should be reversed for two main reasons. The first is, as this court and others have found, state law compliant medical marijuana patients and even others who commit true crimes they have or can be prosecuted for are still amongst the people with Second Amendment rights. The second is that the historical analogs that the appellees rely on are neither distinctly nor relevantly similar to the challenge laws and regulations at issue. Is there a separate, uh, let's just assume for the moment that I agree with you completely regarding what the people mean. Is there still a separate component of what I'll call step one or the first step of the Bruin analysis that seems to carve out those who are law-abiding from those who are not? In other words, it's not a function of who the people are or not, but who the Second Amendment or had the right to bear arms were or were not at the founding. Your Honor, I believe what it applies to is not who has the general right to bear arms, as it's an individual right belonging to the people, but who could be stripped of that right. I you don't think there's, there's the Supreme Court is filtering, at least at step one, some folks whether it's through the people function or through just those who had that right, and then secondly, on who amongst have that right can be stripped from it. I, it seems to me that there's a filtering function for step one um, somewhere along the lines, and I don't know if it's the people or if it's taking out those who sort of didn't have that right at the founding in general or categorically, and then to the second part, who then, who didn't, wasn't categorically excluded, could then strip it individually. Sure, and I know that's the question this court grappled with in Jimenez Shalom. What is the, what does the people mean? It seems to, I have to tell you, that seems to be in reading, and I've tried to read every one of the cases around the circuits. That seems to be what we're struggling with and what I hope the Supreme Court clarifies in Rahimi, which is not the step two part. I think that is fairly clear, and I think you may be right on a lot of the step two part, but it's really that step one part that I'm, I'm struggling with and struggling with to even understand what the Supreme Court is telling you. And I'll just say, and I, I, I don't want to occupy too much of your time, but the constant references to law-abiding have to mean something. I am not willing to read those out, um, whether it's dicta or not. Um, the Supreme Court has said it and said it, I think, 12 times. It has to mean something. What does it mean? Absolutely. And we believe it means that those who are not law-abiding, those who commit sufficiently transgressive, violent acts can be stripped of that individual right. That it, again, as Heller made clear, this is not a collective right, it's not a right the government bestows on the people, but once a person shows themselves to not be willing or able to abide by the social compact, to not be willing to not live amongst, not be violent or transgressive, they can be stripped of that right. And I believe as now Justice Barrett stated, we, we believe correctly in the Cantor dissent, the question you raise is absolutely appropriate and I do believe Rahimi will provide more guidance on that point, but I would submit two things for purposes of this case. One, the question of who's amongst the people or not likely leads 
to the same, likely leads to step two. It, if the court were to just find, if you use medical marijuana, you're not amongst the people and stop there, that would stop the analysis. We don't believe that com comports even with this court's holdings in Rozier or, or Jimenez Shalone that even felons are amongst the people. They just can be stripped of those rights. But it really gets into the historical basis of can these people be disarmed? That's what I believe, and that's what I. I'm, so who is not? So who is excluded at step one? What what function does step one have? As I read this court statements, and for example, Jimenez Shalone. Well, start with Bruin. Sure. So start starting with Bruin with the interpret, starting with Bruin and Heller. My understanding of the people is meant to include all Americans. That was stated in Heller. I believe that's been further clarified by others that that's meant to mean the political community. Non-citizens would be excluded from that. I believe, as, as stated in Jimenez alone, if that remains good law, and I'll, just for the moment, if that has not been abrogated, then at least people, for example, someone who's in the country illegally and does not have sufficient contacts could be excluded. Maybe all persons not in the country illegally, but the, not in the country legally, but the appellants in this case are citizens of this country who only use medical marijuana because, not just because of state law, because of Congress's actions and Congress's statements. And that takes us really to that second step of what is the historical analog for what we're looking at here? A situation where, as Justice Thomas stated, Congress is simultaneously forbidding and tolerating the same conduct at the same time. I still haven't gotten a satisfactory answer of what law abiding means with regard to step one. They keep using the term. Why, why, why is that relevant at step one? If, unless it's, we should just ignore it, it doesn't mean anything. And I don't believe you should ignore it, Your Honor, and it is difficult to know where to draw the line. Clearly, I would submit no, no one argues, I believe, that jaywalking or speeding means you can be disarmed. I agree. Uh, no one contends that murder, or for purposes of our case, any, we're not arguing that any felon can't be disarmed. We're not arguing that, for example, domestic violence isn't a basis. What if you're a drug trafficker? You've been convicted of drug trafficking. Drug trafficking would be a felony or felon equivalent offense, and so, we're not contesting that. So you're not law-abiding, and we don't even get to step two. We believe it doesn't get law-abiding. We believe is a catch a catch-all phrase, an umbrella phrase, and what that means historically is you've committed a sufficiently transgressive act, something akin to what we now know as a felony. I believe the Medina versus Whitaker case from the D.C. Circuit that you mean everybody is law-abiding, and we take some out. Is that your idea? Uh, I would say that. Everyone starts with Second Amendment right, rights. Me, right. all, all people in the United States are law-abiding, and we, and we can sort of classify some out. If they are, for example, convicted of or commit a sufficiently transgressive now, act, yes. Done something illegal. Something sufficiently illegal, I submit. That's a sliding scale. You're I think it, I apologize. The reason why... I, you're, I, on a, you're on a sliding scale, you're... Sort of at the bottom? Yeah, absolutely. If you, if you look at the hierarchy, what, what I believe all courts have noted, and what I believe is quite obvious, is that for the government to note that something is a felony, they're saying this is amongst the most transgressive acts you can commit. A misdemeanor, less so. At least for a misdemeanor such as domestic violence, you have a, an inherent violent element or aspect of that offense. When we talk about marijuana use, even if the court were to view it as wholly illegal, it's a nonviolent misdemeanor at the worst, even for a medical marijuana patient. So the government has classified it as being at that bottom scale. But really what Bruin tells us is it's not, Bruin seems to want to get away from the question of what has Congress, how has Congress classified um, a particular act, really looking at history, because I believe it has been pointed out by other courts 
if a state wanted to, for example, enact a gun ban akin to the one proposed or dealt with in Heller, could they just say, we're making mowing your law illegal? We're saying that having one beer makes you too irresponsible, you can't have a gun. Those are for the law abiding. Um, and, and that's where I'm, I'm struggling with how to filter that out. I, I want to get back to the people because the Fourth Amendment, which also references the people, has never been thought to exclude, for example, those without any contacts in the United States, in other words, or it hasn't been thought to exclude felons, including murderers, um, those convicted of murder. Right. Um, how, how do we reconcile that understanding of the people with, with the use in the Second Amendment? It, it is difficult, Your Honor, and that's one of the, something we've, we've certainly sought to be mindful of in the briefing is however the court interprets the people in the Second Amendment, it must be mindful of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the reservations of rights elsewhere, because... It, 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 it's what leads me to believe that it means some, it's not the people that's the filtering function. There's something else about those who were not entitled in other words, those at common law who didn't have the right to begin with, it seems to be those who may have been mentally ill, those who didn't, weren't, didn't have citizenship or didn't have contacts with the United States, those who were disloyal in some way, um, and those who were felons or seen as criminals, right? I believe that's, all, that's certainly all possible. I agree, Rahimi likely will give guidance there, but what I would submit is for any, any filtering test that any court has applied or reasonably could, we'd submit the appellants are within the people, that these, these appellants who only participate in state medical marijuana programs because of Congress's actions and comply with their state actions, with the state laws, are not akin to anyone who's been constitutionally disarmed. What the appellees are attempting to do on that second step is essentially say that historical law is saying you cannot shoot a gun at a New Year's Eve party means that a medical marijuana patient can never possess a gun ever even in their home for purposes of self-defense. That's not a bridge too far, that's about 10 bridges too far. What about the argument that habitual users of drugs, which the, your clients are, whether they are addicts or not, are fairly classified as dangerous individuals? And Your Honor, I believe that would go to the, the analogs to either alcoholics or the mentally ill, essentially people who cannot comport them, their behavior. That's really the type of folks who were disarmed at the founding era are those who showed an inability to understand or apply the law. The, the pleadings in this case refute that as it relates to the appellants. Not only do they understand the law, they follow it. They what about the fact that the Florida Board of Medicine's medical marijuana consent form makes, makes clear the risks of consuming marijuana, which include dizziness, anxiety, confusion, sedation, inability to concentrate, impaired motor skills, paranoia, psychotic symptoms, et cetera? Your Honor, I believe consideration of that really would be the type of policy consideration that, Bu that Bruin has instructed courts not to follow. That it's really not a question of, there's no dispute in this case that marijuana causes intoxication for a period. That when someone uses marijuana- The question is whether, again, if we're looking at analogs, the question that Judge Branch is asking is whether someone who has, uh, does something that is symptomatic of psychosis is, is analogous to those who are seen as mentally ill or insane and were allowed to have their rights taken away. That's the question that Judge Branch is asking you, and I'm, I'm gonna ask the same question. Sure, and, and two points to that, if I may. The first would be, again, if you look at who, who were those types of folks at the founding, essentially the mentally ill, akin to the people now who could be involuntarily <laughs> civilly committed. There's nothing in the pleadings of this case that indicates the appellants are anything like that. The fact that they, they ever use marijuana that does not indicate that they can never comport themselves with the law. As pled, they actively do so. But if the court 
if the court believes that is a pertinent analysis. But the mentally ill have lucid moments. Uh, that, that, uh, how is that not analogous to, to someone? I mean, someone who's mentally ill isn't mentally ill every single second of the day generally. Um, a lot of times it comes and goes. It, it, it is possible. and it is, So what I would say is if it depends on evidence, if that is a point that needs to be proved, then the, ap then the appellees need to be, meet their burden that that is a relevant similarity. Doesn't it hang on the fact that, this, that marijuana at present, maybe it will change, but it is a Schedule One drug, which means that it has a high potential for abuse? And Your Honor, I see my time is up. Please may proceed to answer. Yes, that. thank you. Um, it is a Schedule One drug. We agree marijuana is federally illegal and that under federal law, it is not viewed as having medicinal purposes. So even if it's viewed as wholly illegal, there's still a nonviolent misdemeanor. But purely it's not just that it's wholly illegal. Um, what I'm getting at with both the Florida piece of my question and the federal piece of my question is that you have a drug that is scheduled that is scheduled um, as Schedule One, high potential for abuse, and Florida acknowledges and warns the users of its program that this has the potential for psychosis. Your Honor, what I'd say is. Even if that were true, and I would submit there's no, even if that were true for the moment, what is the historical analog for wholly disarming someone because they ever use a substance that could have impairing effects or even have the effects that you're talking about? All these analogs are sort of prophylactic, aren't they? Uh, am I, you put somebody in a category, mentally ill or whatever it is, and you include everybody, even the, those who are very seriously ill and those who are probably ill, just like with drugs, marijuana. You take somebody who ought not have a gun at any time is on marijuana. So then why not just say marijuana? It's a, as Judge Brand says, it's a, it's a scheduled drug. And we don't grade eight, we don't grade in between. It's sort of just a prophylactic. Sure, so two points, Your Honor. One would be, I think the court does need to be careful of painting with too broad of a brush, as you state about mental illness. And as Judge Luck pointed out, certainly someone who is wholly unable to understand the law is different from someone who has, for example, ADHD or Asperger's or something like that. Whether someone on that end of the scale can be constitutionally disarmed, I don't. I believe is an open question. And so because the Second Amendment is an individual right, because it's not given by the government, we have to be very careful of any consideration saying, let's paint with a broad brush to us so as to make sure that anyone who might hypothetically be too irresponsible is constitutionally disarmed. At that point, there's a number of people with no historical analog being deprived of their core constitutional right. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, and you have three minutes for a rebuttal, Mr. Hazel. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court, Stephen Hazel for the government. I'd like to start with the historical analogs questions where we just left off. And in particular, I'd like to highlight three features of this statute that are critical in analyzing. Before you get there, can I ask you about Rahimi? Um, the Supreme Court's decision, they're, they're having oral argument in November, the Supreme Court's decision on Rahimi could have an effect um, not only on the Fifth Circuit's opinion and potentially its uh, opinion in U.S. v. Daniels, which creates a problem for you here today. Should we wait until the Supreme Court rules on Rahimi? Your Honor, this court certainly has discretion to wait, um, as I think. Came well, I'm asking for your thoughts on that. Uh, 
Your Honor, I, I think it would certainly be appropriate for this court to hold the case for Rahimi, uh, as came up in some of the questions earlier. Uh, there's a couple areas of substantial overlap between this case and that one, uh, including this law-abiding and responsible citizen language, uh, as well as questions about how exactly Bruin's historical analogs tests works. Uh, so of course, uh, we think we've, we've provided the court with more than enough to, to affirm um, based on what's in our briefs. Uh, but would certainly understand. Would you pull that mic up a little bit? <laughs> of course, Your Honor. Is this better? Thanks. Thank you. Um, so, uh, of course, it would be appropriate to hold for Rahimi. I'll, I'll note, as the panel may be aware, uh, the 11th Circuit is granted on banc rehearing in, in, in Bondi, uh, another case with, with parallels, and I believe the on banc court has, has held that one for Rahimi as well, and so that may be an additional uh, reason to, to hold here. Uh, but I do... Uh, I I can, can I get your... Or, or, can I get your view on step one? I know you want to start with step two, but to me, that is what needs the most clarification. I, I, Bruin tells us to some extent, you're right, you're right, we don't have a ton of applications of it, but tells us to some extent how we apply the second step. But I'm at a loss for what to make of the Supreme Court's language on step one. And, and explain to me how it's filtered, and do you agree with your opposing counsel that however it's filtered, the, the folks, the plaintiffs here would not be filtered out of step one? Uh, no, I don't don't agree with that, Your Honor. Tell so, me why. Sure. Uh, so, as I understand this court's decision in in Jimenez, uh, the filtering is not about the the word the people, but it's about the word the right. So, for example, that's why uh, the category of of felons gets gets filtered out. The the underlying nature of the historical right just excludes law abiding and uh, exclude people who are not law abiding and responsible citizens, uh, and that includes. Uh, the the plaintiffs in, in this case, uh, as as I was getting to just a moment ago. What do we do then with the concern that a lot of circuits seem to have, and it's a fair one, and your opposing counsel sort of touches on it, which is that leaves a lot of discretion, not just to Congress, frankly, but to every state legislature in the country to sort of felonize uh, or make non-law-abiding really any conduct that they want. I mean, we, we're, we're fine with that as a matter of of, of the police power in general, but once that, that intrudes on our constitutional rights, that seems to be a tremendous amount of power that we are ceding to, to state legislatures, is it not? So, Your Honor, I think whatever difficult questions there might be on the margins of what it means to be law-abiding and responsible, this case just isn't there. Uh, under the statute, these have to be unlawful users of illegal drugs. Uh, this court has said that means you have to be a regular, ongoing, and contemporaneous drug user. So we're talking about someone who is regularly violating federal law. Uh, my friend a couple times said, you know, whether this sort of floated this idea that maybe this isn't a true crime or something like that. I think in the briefing it was undisputed that the conduct that plaintiffs wish to engage in uh, is a violation of, of federal law, and obviously it has been for 50 years. I think it's also significant that we're talking about a violation uh, not just of the law, but a violation that involves the use of intoxicating substances. It's undisputed here that those substances uh, involve the impairment of, of cognition, judgment, other skills that are essential to the safe handling of firearms. It, uh, it, it is odd, though, that we would categorize as not as law-abiding, even though I think in I would ask someone on the street, they would probably agree with this principle, but that that we would say someone's not law-abiding without a conviction or any sort of judicial determination. Now, I get that they admit that they're doing this, but they seem to be doing it under the veneer of that, hey, wink, wink, it's okay, federally, we're not going to prosecute you because we, we're not funding it, and B, the state has completely blessed this. So how can we say they're not law-abiding under that, that legal infrastructure that exists as it does right now? 
Well, Your Honor, it's, it's very important for the court not to, to overread the nature of this appropriations rider. Uh, it's, it's a funding restriction. It's geographically and temporally limited. Uh, Congress did not uh, exempt marijuana from 922 G3. Uh, it, it did not make it make it illegal. And I think under plaintiff's theory, uh, 922 G3 was legal for decades, uh, became unconstitutional in some states after the rider, and would become constitutional again if those states changed their minds. Uh, that's just an extraordinarily unstable and uncertain view of the Second Amendment. Well, but in terms of when we see someone as law-abiding, it just seems to be hard to say someone's not law-abiding where they are abiding by the law of their state with the, the imprimatur of the federal government that we are not going to prosecute you for right now until we decide to change our mind about that. And not just one time, but have been reaffirmed constantly by the federal government. Your Honor, it, it just can't be the case that, that states can undermine the constitutionality of a longstanding federal law in the, the way that plaintiffs suggest. Which DOJ would take that position consistently in a lot of other contexts, but okay. That, that, that just can't, I mean, under the Supremacy Clause, that just, that just can't be how, how this works. Um, I also want to respond to, to my friend has used the phrase uh, state law compliant uh, marijuana users. Um, that's, I don't think that's that's accurate. There are numerous states that have uh, laws that are similar to 922 G3. Uh, and as we've pointed out, uh, what plaintiffs say that they want to do here is to carry uh, firearms uh, outside of their homes. Uh, Florida law incorporates federal law, including 922 G3. Uh, and what that means is that possessing a firearm outside your home, if you are a regular user of these controlled substances, uh, is a crime under federal law as well. So I don't think it's accurate <clears throat> to say these plaintiffs are state law compliant. Uh, okay, so let's get to the second step. I know you both want to talk about that. So the, the first analog seems to be those that were sort of categorically limited because of a, a perceived irrationality, right? So children, the mentally ill, um, I, I know that the, the term used in, in, at the founding was idiots, um, but, but people who are categorically seen as not uh, having the right because they hadn't achieved the state of reason. Is that a fair description of what the founding understood those categorical limitations to be? I, I think that generally, yes. Okay, so I, I'm having trouble applying that analog to here because we have to apply, the way we apply the analog as I understand Bruin, even in the context of a new, even in a new context, in other words, a, a, a more modern problem like drug use, that we have to apply it, not just the burden or compare the burden, but we compare the, the categorical limitation itself and whether it's sort of overlapping. And here, it would seem to me that, that drug users are not people that we can say had not achieved a state of reason like those who are children or mentally ill, who in other words, couldn't ever get there. Whereas drug users are often there except on the moments when they're using drugs, right? Right, Your Honor. So how can we say that that, isn't, that, that is a sufficient analog under Bruin, that category? Your Honor, I, I think in looking at the founding era analogs, it's it's critically important for the, the court to be aware that, of course, there were not widespread uh, illegal drugs at the founding. That's that's not something that happens until the turn of the 20th century. Without a doubt. Uh, and so, you know, we can't expect the, the founders to have, have done things that look like twins for 922 G3, given context. I know we don't need twins. I, I understand that. Um, there's, there's some give there. But if the... If the theory behind it, in other words, what we compare purpose is the what, what I understand it when we're comparing categories in kind, um, not in burden, but in kind. 
And, and the purpose was because children did not have the state of reason in order to have the right. Um, and those who were mentally ill had not achieved the state of reason in order to have the right. How is that purpose consistent with drug use, which seems to be not having to do with someone not achieving the state of reason, but because of the horrible and detrimental effects that drugs have in our communities? Your Honor, I think it's, it's important to include uh, the analogs you've already identified, uh, as, as well as some of the other analogs, uh, including, so for example, plaintiffs have conceded that the historical tradition includes disarming those who are currently intoxicated. Uh, at the time, it was... So I'll get there in a second, um, but I, I'm really won't focus now, because you, as I understand it, you sort of have two groups. You have the group dealing with children, mentally ill, and those who, through some sort of, of what we call, probably call intellectual disability, um, were one category. And that's a category of, of kind that we look to whether the purpose overlapped or was consistent. And then you have the, the drunkenness ones, which are very much overlap here, but there we look, in my mind, to the, but then the burden. Is the burden different there? And I'll, I have questions about the burden for those. So if we can just keep them in those boxes, that would be helpful for me. Of course, Your Honor. So to, to start with the, the first of those okay. boxes, I mean, I think the, the analog here is that, um, in, you know, in terms of the why, there's this concern about the combination of, uh, of, of firearms and then people who, for, you know, for various reasons, and obviously you've listed a lot of different categories, would be irresponsible with firearms. That's obviously what's underlying 922 G3 as well. There's this concern that if you are a regular user of, of illegal drugs, then very often you're going to be in a condition where you are not in a position to use firearms safely. Uh, and, and moving on to that second category, I think it's really confirmed there uh, by these historical laws disarming those who are currently intoxicated. So there I agree with you in terms of overlap and purpose. But then you have, we also have to compare not just purpose, but burden. And there it seems to me that your opposing counsel has a point that the burdens in those in the intoxication analogs had to do with the, being intoxicated at that moment and didn't extend outside the moment of intoxication. Is that fair or unfair? So, Your Honor, I think that that's true of, of many of the historical laws. Tell me which ones that, that, that doesn't include. It, it seems to be all the ones that I saw, but tell me if I have that wrong. Your Honor, I, I believe I, I left that caveat because I believe there are some later historical laws that are focused on addicts and things like that, and that those laws would obviously apply. I'm focused on ones in the founding at this point. Understood, Your Honor. Um, so with, with respect to those laws focusing on currently intoxicated, um, I think it's critically important that 922 G3 is not a permanent ban. Uh, it's, it's temporary. It's only so long as this is regular, ongoing, and contemporaneous use. That's not exactly the same thing as focused on a current user. It's not a twin, uh, but but it is very close, right? If you were in Congress saying, you know, how can we go just a little bit further than these historical laws, the you would focus. But the regulatory framework seems to extend that pretty far. Um, the regulatory framework seems to suggest that you could look almost a year out in determining the regular user. Am I wrong on that? I, I, I don't think that's quite right, Your Honor. So the, the regulatory framework is consistent with this what this court has said in Edmonds, which is that regular and ongoing language. Uh, what the regulation says, I believe the language is something like active or current user, uh, and that's tied to the statutory language. The evidence, and, and you're right, I, I don't disagree with that, but the evidence to get there, can't you look to past use within a year's time to then conclude that something is regular and ongoing? 
Am I Your wrong Honor, on that? The, the regulation recognizes that a failed drug test in the past year can support an inference of, of regular and ongoing use. Uh, of course, you know, that's not what we have here. Plaintiffs haven't said what they plan to do. Does that mean Elaine Bennis, because she ate too much poppy seed bagels, is then presumed to be a drug user, a heroin user for uh, for a year? Of, of course not, Your Honor. It's it's an, an inference from a failed drug test. A, a jury would have to look at, at all of the facts in determining whether someone is a regular and ongoing user. I know, but that doesn't, help, that doesn't help someone when they're in the box. I mean, the, the whole point of this is you don't have to be in the box to be able to make that call. Um, and in the meantime, in other words, you, at that point, you've been arrested, you've been prosecuted, you're now in a jury box, and it's now a fact-finding. Um, and that's a lot of not being able to possess a firearm up until then, right? So, uh, Your Honor, again, I mean, plaintiffs aren't, aren't alleging that their use would be every year. I mean, that's just not at all what we're talking about here. We're talking about uh, use that, that they acknowledge would be regular and ongoing. It's, it's to treat uh, persistent uh, medical conditions. And so, you know, I think to the extent that they have a challenge to this regulation, this as applied suit would just not be the, the forum for, for resolving that challenge. Um, I, I, I do want to say a couple more things about the historical analogs question. Uh, first, I, I, I think in looking at this history, uh, it's critically important to recognize that legislatures have greater authority uh, to disarm based on conduct that is illegal. Uh, alcohol, uh, as is the substance at issue in many of these analogs, uh, was legal for, for most of American history, including at the relevant times. Uh, marijuana, of course, is not legal, and so we know uh, because of Bruin, because Bruin tells us again and again uh, that legislatures will have greater authority uh, to disarm based on drug use because that uh, conduct is is not in in, in fact uh, legal and in fact marijuana is, is a Schedule One substance. So we've talked about um, the comparison to intoxication, alcohol intoxication. Like, can we shift to the mentally ill? concern about somebody who is mentally ill, who is dangerous, your opposing counsel has warned us if we go down that path, we run the risk of painting with too broad a brush. You have people who might have ADHD, they might be taking medication for that. How, how, how do we avoid that pitfall where we're not just capturing everybody who might have been diagnosed with a mental illness? Your Honor, 922G3 focuses on people who are both uh, have you know, have this impairment uh, in G3. It's as a result of, of illegal drugs, of course, and people whose uh, activities are legal, right? And so I think in many of the examples you just gave, uh, in fact, in, in all of them, there, there's no reason to think that what's going on there is is illegal. And of course, uh, for the reasons that I just gave, uh, the the Second Amendment analysis may well be different in a case. Uh, where legislatures uh, increased authority to disarm uh, based on conduct that is not law-abiding uh, isn't implicated. So I think those those. But, but I'm talking about if we use as the historical analog um, mental illness as a concern, are we not running the risk that in in future cases that presents a far broader problem? Your Honor, I, I think in in this case uh, the the district court. Uh, the district court's approach, Judge Windsor's approach, may be a good good model. Uh, I think he focused on uh, not just one analog, but said, look, all, all three of these are present here. We're talking about alcohol, we're talking about criminal conduct, and, and we're talking about 
these these forms of impairment uh, and, and based his decision on that. I think the court could could do the same thing here and leave uh, for for another case. Uh, you know what exactly this, the the scope of authority is with respect to, to mental illness. And why are we not following the Fifth Circuit's opinion in Daniels? So, Your Honor, I think Daniels is inconsistent with both uh, this court's uh, precedent and with Supreme Court precedent. Um, as some of Judge uh, Luck's earlier questions got at, uh, Daniels just does not put any weight on the Supreme Court's references to law-abiding and responsible citizens. It says those are the Supreme Court's epithets uh, and then moves on. Uh, that's not the approach this court has taken in cases like Rosier. And Rosier, the court said, either it's not dicta at all or it deserves substantial weight. And so I think the Fifth Circuit uh, has just taken a, a, a path that this court has, has not. Um, it's, it's also important to note that Daniels relies very heavily on the Fifth Circuit's earlier decision uh, in Rahimi. Uh, of course, um, the Supreme Court has granted certiorari there, and so there's some reasons to be uncertain about the, the uh, foundations of, of Daniels. I see that my, my time has expired. Thank you. And Mr. Hall, you have three minutes. Thank you, Your Honors. Two quick points, if I may. The first as to the mental illness question, and second, going back to the people question. Um, looking at the Appley's answer brief, the Appley's actually extensively lay out some of the views of, as it was called, drunkards at the founding. And I would submit that those views were akin to mental illness. The folks such as John Adams, John Locke, the people cited essentially said that alcohol rendered someone, much like was talked about in the marijuana regulation, essentially unable to function, even beyond that it had some long-lasting effect on them. It was viewed as akin to mental illness. But the how it was dealt with, to Judge Jaluk's point, was essentially through a time, place, and manner restriction, not through wholesale disarmament. That's but where- don't we have that here? It's only dealing with current users. Your Honor, it's for during the time of current use, which I would submit that, again, going beyond even the point here, in Wilson v. Lynch in the Ninth Circuit, the Appleys have taken the position that even someone who obtains a medical marijuana card purely as First Amendment speech who doesn't even use medical marijuana is an unlawful user who can be disarmed. But to the extent someone used a month ago, whatever it might be, they move out of it, yes, they could regain their gun rights, but the question is, is the imposition at that time constitutional? Is the fact that that person can't even defend themselves in their home? Is your argument that you slide in and out of constitutional protection? I, I believe that's the appellees. You're, you're in a category, but you can move in and out. That, I believe, is what the law seems to set up, and we submit that's frankly inconsistent with the Second Amendment. That it's really a matter that we, we don't believe the idea that you go crazy by joining the medical marijuana. This, this is a unique, <coughs> unique case in the sense it's a lawsuit for declaratory judgment. Yes, sir. Most Second Amendment claims, I would think, would arise when they arrest somebody Correct. who has a gun, and they're arresting for from something, and and the gun plays a role in the the arrest, and they and they say the Second Amendment allowed me to have the gun, and so it's an ad hoc sort of thing. Sure. You're not thinking about whole categories of people or such things as that. You're, I'm sorry. And I need to look at the analog in that particular case. In this, in this situation, it's a, just a broad brush proposition. Your Honor, now that's why I raised the prophylactic point in the first place. Sure, I, I understand. It, yes. So what? So once somebody says, "I want to have a gun and do medical marijuana," you're talking about a category of 
a whole bunch of people. You're not talking about an isolated incident in which the person has has the gun, but is not under the influence. Correct, Your Honor. Yes, under the traditional, as I've seen it on almost every other case that's come up, pre or post Bruin, it's been someone arrested for 922 G3. This is one of the few civil contacts. But without having been arrested, my clients, it, it is beyond question, it would be illegal for them because they participate in this program to ever still, have a get, get What Judge Bradshaw was driving at is still a scheduled uh, narcotic or drug. It is correct. It is correct, Your Honor. Mm-hmm. And the way the criminal law treats it, everybody's the same. Uh, in a way, yes. I, w- I would say no as to medical marijuana, not what, by what Congress has the done. Drug, in the drug world, initially, Congress, for example, never anticipated some people are going to get arrested and some aren't. Correct. I, I agree. They're all treated, treated alike. I agree, and I'll be brief as I see my time's expired, but certainly when, when Gonzalez v. Reich was decided, you had, as Justice Thomas said, a watertight prohibition against marijuana. Why don't we do a category in this situation, whether or not people who want to violate the law with respect to marijuana are all in the same boat if they want a declaratory judgment about future conduct as opposed to being arrested on in a specific case. Sure. So quickly, Your Honor, my clients actually cannot be arrested right now because of the Rohrabacher Oh, I realize that. Right, which, which is what makes this so ahistorical. We agree with Justice Thomas that you have a half-in, half-out marijuana policy. But, but to your point, as to wrap up, that's why I would submit what we're asking for is a very limited holding, even more limited than Daniels. We agree with the reasoning in Daniels, but Daniels was a wholly illegal user of marijuana. We're only asking for declaratory relief as it applies to state law compliant medical marijuana patients who we believe are distinct, and even if they're not, there's no analog for their disarmament. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. We have your case under advisement. I'll call the next case, but I'm going to give you all a chance to get set up.